the best in Bitcoin made audible. I'm Guy Swan and this is Bitcoin Audible. What's up guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan and we have a great read today. Uh, if you guys have not read and or heard the past uh, pieces we have done in the Genesis Files by Aaron Von Verdum, um, this is a great series about all of the precursors to Bitcoin. We've done uh, Nick Zabo's BitGold, uh, Wei Dai's B-Money, um, Adam Back's Hash Cash, and there's another one which I can't think of off the top of my head, but uh, it's a great series, and we have another in this series, which was actually released on August 28th, or Hal's Day, the day that we lost Hal Finney. Um, and of course, it is about Hal Finney. Um, and it's a pretty long one, so I hope I have time to get into some commentary and get guys take at the end of this. But I'm not promising anything, but I want to just get this uh, read out for today. Again, it is on Bitcoin Magazine, and it is part of the Genesis Files series. And it's titled, How Hal Finney's Quest for Digital Cash Led to Reusable Proofs of Work and More. Once described by PGP creator Phil Zimmerman as the Mr. Rogers of cryptography, Hal Finney, 1956, was known for his relentlessly uplifting spirit. He carried a positive perspective on life with him even when amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, paralyzed his entire body until the Bitcoin pioneer ultimately passed away from the disease on August 28, 2014. In the 1980s, as a graduate from the California Institute of Technology working in the startup computer game industry, Finney's optimism made him fit in naturally with the extropians. This Californian techno-libertarian movement drew much of its inspiration from Austrian economists and libertarian authors, and embraced nanotechnology, artificial intelligence, space travel, and other futuristic technologies as tools to propel humanity toward a next evolutionary stage. If science and innovation could progress free from government interference, the extropians believed, eternal life and other transhumanist goals were within reach. Finney, too, liked to operate on the cutting edge of technology. When the internet became publicly available for the first time in the early 1990s, he immediately began to explore the World Wide Web and other corners of the brand new information superhighway, and quickly recognized the revolutionary potential embedded in the nascent network. Humanity would, for the first time, become connected across the globe, regardless of geographic distances, cultural differences, or arbitrary borders. But there was a flip side. Finney, well-versed in the design trade-offs presented by the internet, knew that cyberspace didn't just offer exciting new possibilities, but also potential risks. As communication went digital, anyone's conversations were in peril of being monitored. The net could represent an encroachment on everyone's privacy, and therefore become a possible threat to human liberty. This was true for regular communication and Finney realized it was equally true for financial transactions. In a digitalizing world, money would inevitably go digital too. 
This meant that anonymous payments could become a thing of the past. Quote, Dossiers could be built up which would track the spending patterns of each of us, Finney explained in a 1993 essay. Already when I order something over the phone or electronically using my Visa card, a record is kept of exactly how much I spent and where I spent it. As time goes on, more transactions may be done this way. The net result could be a great loss of privacy. End quote. Just like regular physical cash, the paper banknotes and metal coins that you carried in your pocket, Finney concluded that the internet needed an untraceable form of money, allowing for anonymous transactions. The internet needed digital cash. The birth of digital cash. Fortunately, it turned out that digital cash was in development already. Quote, It seems so obvious to me, Finney later wrote. Here we are faced with the problems of loss of privacy, creeping computerization, massive databases, more centralization, and David Chalm offers a completely different direction to go in, one which puts power in the hands of individuals rather than governments and corporations. The computer can be used as a tool to liberate and protect people rather than to control them. End quote. Indeed, having foreseen many of the same problems as Finney, cryptographer David Chalm had come up with a design for digital cash called eCash. What's more, Chalm had founded a company, DigiCash, to make such a system reality. Designed as a privacy layer for existing currencies, dollars, euros, and yen, the plan was to sell the technology to banks. Finney soon found himself promoting Chalm's project to his fellow extropians, at one point authoring a seven-page explainer for Extropy, the magazine at the heart of the movement. Quote, Cryptography can make possible a world in which people have control over information about themselves, not because government has granted them that control, but because only they possess the cryptographic keys to reveal that information, he wrote, advocating the potential of digital cash to the techno-libertarian crowd. This is the world we are working to create. End quote. Around that same time, in 1992, Finney had received an invitation from fellow extropian Tim May. Along with some tech-oriented and privacy-focused friends in the Bay Area, including former DigiCash employee Eric Hughes, May was assembling a group of hackers, computer scientists, and cryptographers to further online privacy by leveraging the potential of cryptography. The group would call itself the Cypherpunks. Its weapon of choice? The software it would create and distribute. Cypherpunks write code as it would adopt as a rally cry. Finney did write code. He was responsible for some of the group's early successes. Together with Hughes, he developed and ran the first Remailer, a server that anonymously forwarded emails to help people communicate privately. When Zimmerman released PGP, Finney became a major contributor to the project. And as a much-publicized stunt, he also organized a contest to break Netscape's export-grade, read weakened, SSL encryption, which a fellow cypherpunk indeed succeeded in breaking. But Finney's main interest was always digital cash. When alternative electronic cash proposals popped up on the cypherpunk mailing list, carrying names like Magic Cash, Brands Cash, or Trust Bucks, Finney was always eager to review them. Focusing on privacy features in particular, he'd often explain to his fellow cypherpunks how the different systems worked, helping them understand the possibilities and limitations of different digital cash solutions. 
and whenever the topic came up in conversation, he was always available to offer his constructive insights. Hash cash and proof of work. One particularly interesting digital cache design was proposed in 1997 by a young computer scientist and cypherpunk from England named Adam Back. Hashcash, as this proposal was called, used a proof-of-work system to generate something akin to postage stamps as a solution to counter spam. In a nutshell, before sending, say, an email, a hashcash user would need to generate a hash, a seemingly random string of numbers, using parts of the email and some extra data, and send this hash along with the email to the recipient. The recipient would only accept the email if it included a valid hash, otherwise the email would bounce. The trick was that only a subset of potential hashes based on the email would be considered valid. This meant that users had to spend some computing power, essentially energy, to generate hash cash. This was trivial for a regular user sending a simple email. It would maybe cost a few seconds of computations. However, if a spammer wanted to send millions of emails at once, the energy requirements to find all the required valid hashes for each of the millions of emails would quickly add up, rendering spam unprofitable. Back's proposal could function as a type of postage, but wasn't really intended to work as fully-fledged currency. Most importantly, each proof-of-work uniquely corresponded to a specific email, which meant that a hashcash recipient couldn't re-spend the same proof-of-work elsewhere. Regardless, cypherpunks quickly realized that hashcash offered something very interesting. Proof-of-work introduced a digital representation of a scarce real-world resource, energy. And since scarcity is a fundamental property of money, Back and other cypherpunks recognized that proof-of-work could potentially serve as the basis for a whole new type of currency, an unbacked digital cash that didn't require banks at all. In the following years, two notable digital cash proposals were indeed based on proof-of-work, Nick Zabo's BitGold and Weidai's B-Money. But while both were interesting designs, they still had some weaknesses, for which the suggested solutions were complex and not fully thought out. Probably in part because of this, neither proposal was ever actually implemented. Meanwhile, Digicash was failing to turn eCash into a success. Charm's company, initially considered a hot new startup by internet pioneers of the 1990s, ended up filing for bankruptcy before the end of the decade. When, by the early 2000s, the cypherpunk movement started to fall apart as well, their dream of digital cash was turning into little more than a fading memory. RPOW and Remote Attestation But Hal Finney, ever the optimist, wasn't ready to give up. In 2004, about a decade after he first started promoting electronic cash within extropian circles, Finney proposed a digital currency system of his own, Reusable Proofs of Work, or RPOW, pronounced RPOW. While simplified in several ways, the cypherpunk had taken inspiration from BitGold and used Hashcash's proof-of-work system for currency generation. Quote, Security researcher Nick Zabo has coined the term BitGold to refer to a similar concept of tokens which inherently represent a certain level of effort. Finney's RPOW website explained, 
Nick's concept is more complex than the simple RPAL system, but his insight applies. In some way, an RPAL token can be thought of as having the properties of a rare substance like gold. It takes effort and expense to mine and mint gold coins, making them inherently scarce. End quote. Where Zabo and Dai had stopped short of implementing their digital cash proposals into software, Finney actually coded up an RPAL prototype. He invited people to try the system out, advertising the electronic cash on a simple blue and green webpage featuring an RPAL logo in comic book style. Think of the PAL letters marking the spot where Batman's uppercut meets some poor henchman's jaw. For the prototype, Finney had set up an RPAL server running open source software. The server acted as the mint, where new RPAL tokens were issued, and would also check that tokens weren't being spent multiple times by the same user, or double spent. To see how this worked, let's say Alice wanted to generate an RPAL token. First, she'd connect with Finney's server, potentially over Tor for optimal privacy. Alice would then take some data unique to the server and herself and start hashing it until she'd find a valid proof of work. She'd send the proof of work to the server, which would check it for validity. If valid, the server would create a unique RPAL token, usually just a string of data, and send it to Alice in return. The server would also store a copy of the token in a local database. When Alice wanted to spend the RPAL token, she'd simply send it to the intended recipient, let's say Bob, for example, to download an MP3 file from him. It didn't technically matter for the RPAL system how she had sent the token, as long as she'd be sure that it'd make its way to Bob without anyone intercepting it. A message encrypted with Bob's public key would have done the trick. As Bob received the RPAL token, he'd need to check it for validity and make sure that it hadn't been double spent. To do that, he'd immediately forward the token to the RPAL server, where the software would check that it was included in its internal database and wasn't already spent. If it checked out, the server confirmed this to Bob, and Bob could send Alice the MP3 file. The server would then also mark the RPAL token as spent, deeming it invalid for future use. Finally, it would create a new RPAL token, send this to Bob, and include this new token in its internal database. Bob could then spend this new token again, repeating the process. In this way, tokens representing a single proof of work could continue to circulate indefinitely. It was, effectively, reusable proof of work. The system as described so far would work fine, but it would have required trust in the operator of the RPAL server, in this case, Finney. Finney could have adjusted the RPAL software to cheat, and for example, mint RPAL tokens for himself without producing any proof of work. Or he could double spend the same tokens without anyone noticing. Finney, however, didn't want users to have to trust the operator of the RPAL server, even if that operator was him. An RPAL server therefore needed to have a special property. As the system's main innovation, the RPAL server was hosted on a secure hardware component, the IBM 4758. This allowed for something called trusted computing. In short, the tamper-proof hardware contained a private key embedded by IBM that no one, not even the owner of the secure hardware component, Finney in this case, could meddle with or extract. Using a trick called remote attestation, 
the private key could generate a certificate stating what software is running on the secure hardware component. With this certificate, anyone connected with the server could verify that the secure hardware component was running the exact RPAL open source code without any backdoors or other adjustments. Quote, the RPAL system is architected with one overriding goal, to make it impossible for anyone, even the owner of the RPAL server, even the developer of the RPAL software, to be able to violate the system's rules and forge RPAL tokens, Finney's RPAL website explained. Without such a guarantee against forgeability, RPAL tokens would not credibly represent the work that was done to create them. Forgeable tokens would be more like paper money than bit gold. End quote. The fate of RPAL. RPAL was live, but Finney knew that this simplified version of BitGold still had its limitations. For one, the prototype depended on a central server. Thanks to the open source code and trusted computing, this didn't give Finney unchecked power over the system, although perhaps a rogue IBM employee could do some damage. A more realistic concern, however, was that Finney could, for example, choose to take his server offline altogether, or be forced to do so. This would instantly render all RPAL tokens useless. But an even bigger problem was probably that the tokens would be subject to a form of inflation. As computing power would become cheaper over time, it's easier to generate valid proof of work year after year. Quote, if Moore's law continues to hold true, the cost of creating a proof-of-work token will drop at a steady exponential rate, Finney wrote on the project website. He noted that the hardest proof-of-work would continue to be difficult to generate well into the future, and that computational performance increases would slow down over time as well. Yet he told readers, quote, Keep in mind that this is not money and is not intended to be a stable store of value, but rather an easy-to-exchange representation of computer effort." End quote. Indeed, the RPAL creator considered his electronic cash system more in line with Back's original Hashcash proposal. While proof-of-work could now be reused, the tokens were still mainly intended to function as something like a form of digital postage, not really as a fully-fledged type of money. Users could utilize the system to counter spam, use it to align incentives in a file-sharing network, or maybe even have some fun with it as poker chips in a peer-to-peer -peer poker game. But RPAL tokens weren't exactly useful for savings. Where Zabo and Dai attempted to solve the inflation problem with layers of added complexity, Finney just accepted the inflation. This made RPAL much simpler in design, but may also be why RPAL never took off. With no financial incentive to hold RPAL tokens, there was very little reason to accept them as payment in the first place. And without anyone accepting the tokens for payment, there was no one to spend them, meaning there was even less reason for anyone to accept them for payment, and so on. RPAL faced a chicken and egg problem. For an electronic cash system to succeed, that chicken and egg problem had to somehow be overcome. And the faith of Finney. In October 2008, Finney received an email through the cryptography mailing list that he subscribed to, which was widely considered to be the spiritual successor of the cypherpunks mailing list. In the email, Satoshi Nakamoto, 
only later to be assumed to be a mysterious pseudonym, proposed a new type of electronic cash, Bitcoin. Like RPAL, Bitcoin was based on Hashcash's proof-of-work system, but unlike RPAL, it didn't depend on any central server. While innovative, Bitcoin wasn't immediately received with much enthusiasm. Most cypherpunk veterans on the cryptography mailing list had by then seen one too many electronic cash experiments come and go, without any real successes to account for. And there were some valid concerns with this new proposal as well. Bitcoin transactions weren't instant. Adversaries with a lot of computing power could overpower the system, and the solution didn't appear to be very scalable. But Finney, being the optimist that he was, had decided to focus on the positive instead. Bitcoin seems to be a very promising idea, Finney responded on the mailing list. I like the idea of basing security on the assumption that the CPU power of honest participants outweighs that of the attacker. I also do think that there is a potential value in a form of unforgeable token whose production rate is predictable and can't be influenced by corrupt parties. Indeed, Finney recognized that Bitcoin solved a big problem. Nakamoto had figured out how to limit the issuance of new currency. Where RPAL tokens became easier to generate as computing power became cheaper over time, Bitcoin would have a fixed issuance schedule. Proof of work was still used to generate new tokens, but a clever difficulty adjustment algorithm ensured that increased computing power would also make it more difficult to find new tokens, and vice versa, a decrease in computing power would make it easier. Just a few months after dropping the proposal on the cryptography mailing list, the pseudonymous author of the Bitcoin white paper followed up with actual code, including an issuance schedule. As fewer and fewer new coins would be released over time, the total supply would eventually level out. There would never be more than 21 million Bitcoin. Finney was quick to point out why this mattered. Quote, One immediate problem with any new currency is how to value it. Even ignoring the practical problem that virtually no one will accept it at first, there is still a difficulty in coming up with a reasonable argument in favor of a particular non-zero value for the coins, he wrote. As an amusing thought experiment, imagine that Bitcoin is successful and becomes the dominant payment system in use throughout the world. Then the total value of the currency should be equal to the total value of all wealth in the world. Current estimates of total worldwide household wealth that I've found range from 100 trillion to 300 trillion. With 20 million coins, that gives each coin a value of about 10 million dollars. In concluding, so the possibility of generating coins today with a few cents of compute time may be quite a good bet, with a payoff of something like 100 million to one. Even if the odds of Bitcoin succeeding to this degree are slim, are they really 100 million to one against? Something to think about. The tokens could have value, Finney figured, even if just speculative value at first. This provided an incentive for people to mine it, hold it, and of course, accept it for payment. Bitcoin offered a way out of the chicken and egg problem that RPAL hadn't been able to overcome. When Bitcoin launched in early 2009, Finney was one of the first miners on the network, and while he helped Satoshi with technical contributions, 
he became the first person in the world to receive a Bitcoin transaction from the system's pseudonymous creator himself. Later that same year, Finney was diagnosed with ALS, but he didn't let the disease bring him down. While spending the last stage of his life paralyzed, restricted to a wheelchair, and dependent on breathing assistance, he was using eye-tracking software to continue writing Bitcoin code. Quote, I still love programming and it gives me goals, Finney told users of the popular Bitcoin Talk forum. It has been an adjustment, but my life is not too bad. And even now, in death, the RPAL creator carries a spark of optimism along with him. Following in an extropian tradition, Finney wasn't buried or cremated. Instead, his body is cryogenically frozen and preserved in sub-zero temperatures by the Alcor Life Extension Foundation. Perhaps, as the extropian philosophy predicts, a cure for ALS will be found one day, and technology advances to the point where Finney can be brought back to life. It's a long shot, to be sure, with most mainstream scientists dismissing the idea. But if Finney wasn't the type to take optimistic long shots, few of us today might have heard of the Bitcoin pioneer at all. And that is Aaron Von Wordham's fifth installment of Bitcoin Magazine's The Genesis Files series. Uh, it was eCash was the one I couldn't remember. So it was David Chalm's eCash, Adam Back's HashCash, Wade Eye's B-Money, and Nick Zabo's BitGold. Uh, and they are all available on this show in audio, and it is a fascinating series. Um, and I always love talking about and digging into the history like, the the amount of beating on this process and these technologies that they did for decades trying to pull this thing together and and make something real it is amazing how how similar our pal was like like in where the um uh the proof of work was actually used in the system and that's like the main innovation in Bitcoin, like the kind of brilliance was to separate it from the token itself, but to still uh, preserve uh, that unforgeable costliness. Like that's, that's where it still got used, but it was separated from the issuance, uh, from the token itself, uh, and simply used as a, as a means to govern its issuance schedule. And that was what was so brilliant about Bitcoin. And to rather than have, it's, it's funny how like all the same problems were there, right? Is the, and, and each one of them seemed to, in some form or fashion, solve one piece of the puzzle until the difficulty adjustment really brought the entire thing together and, and turned Hashcash and RPAL and BitGold and B-Money. It took, it took the best of all of these things and really turned it into a distributed system. And uh, by able, being able to run open source code, it created a consensus network around the establishment of the rules. And one of the, one of the fascinating things is that like, uh, Hal actually says in this piece when he's um, making a, um, or well, he said in response to the uh, Bitcoin white paper, he said, I like the idea of basing security on the assumption that the CPU power of honest participants outweighs that of the attacker. I also do think that there is potential value in the form of an unforgeable token whose production rate is predictable and can't be influenced by corrupt parties. 
And this is something where Finney uh, really understood or seemed to grasp the concept of uh, a provable scarceness, the, the idea that the software could enforce scarcity of the token without um, essentially without any, any third party, without you know, needing that RPAL you know, attestation or whatever of some sort of central server, which was um, he solved essentially the attempt at a, a, a provable cost to creating a token. Um, and the, uh, the exchange of that token, which was actually funny, the, you know, the, the rehashing of the same hash to um, basically expire the old token. And so funny, like how many of these are so eerily reminiscent of what actually ended up being is that you just keep locking this token history to a new public key. So, you know, you know, locking it with a public key, a signature is a hash. It's, these are all the exact same tools, just in bizarre modifications of them. And uh, what ended up being the last state, the UTXO, the, the final state of that token, is the most recent hash, the most recent signature. So just like his was a chain of uh, a proof of work being rehashed over and over and over again, and you use the final hash, well, this was a chain of signatures, and you use the final signature. And this was a part of the necessity of removing um, proof of work from the token itself, but more to the governing of the network of, over how we decide what the issuance is um, within it. But uh, he says, I like the idea of basing security on the assumption that CPU power of honest participants outweighs that of the attacker. Um, and he says something else. I think it's in this one, but it's, it's funny I, I, that... This was something that was base that was uh, really important to the network originally, and we actually found in practice, and as Bitcoin evolved and expanded over time, that we separated out these roles. And that's actually one of the most fascinating things to see how Bitcoin evolved from an implementation perspective and actually removed some of the power from the miners because it essentially was they realized that the network enforcing the rules on the miners, the network essentially requiring um, the fact that consensus required them to uh, follow that set of rules actually wasn't what enforced mining wasn't what enforced the inflation schedule. It was verification of what the miners did. So to enforce the scarcity of the token, to, to enforce the issuance schedule of Bitcoin, didn't require um, dominant hash power. It required the network to be uh, verifying the rules, to be validating. And this is where after a couple of years in Bitcoin, when basically the blockchain started to grow or the time chain started to grow to a point where it was bulky to manage and the token itself began... Uh, began to obtain so much value that it could actually sustain a market. And, you know, you saw the birth of the Silk Road and uh, all of these market activities and real exchanges and, and things like, like a, a, an actual industry around this thing, though, you know, some tiny infant version of the thing. But nonetheless, like we were starting to see real economic activity happen on top of this system. Well, quickly the roles started to diverge. You started to see that people would just run wallets. And they didn't want to be a miner. Um, and mining quickly went to the, you know, you know, from CPUs to GPUs, and then from GPUs to uh, FPGAs, um, and then from FPGAs to finally ASICs. And that that whole like evolution 
was so fast. It was crazy how fast it was. As it was realized that people, um, as people began to realize that there was real value in staying power in this system, the iterations on that was were unbelievable. And it was moving at light speed. We literally like compressed 30 years of um, computing specialization into like four years. It was utterly insane. Every couple, like just having a delay on a miner, like uh, a, a new miner, uh, like a machine or a new chip or whatever it was, um, for weeks meant that whole, you, you already missed the entire era of GPU mining or FPGA mining. Like if you didn't order it and immediately get it in like a couple of days, like you ran the risk of just having garbage uh, hardware in uh, like two months. Um, and it was just so crazy to see how fast that was happening. And like, I kind of, I first found Bitcoin right when we were hitting that point. And this is all because like he realized that chicken and egg problem that when you have a set issuance schedule, suddenly you have a way to value this token. Suddenly you have a, you have a realization that there is a specific number of these things and whatever the economic activity is on top of it, that it represents a portion of that. You're, you're paying for or you're, you're buying into a portion of the ec economic activity that this system can facilitate. And it's amazing how, how prescient that comment that he made was. Like right at the beginning, it says, so, uh, quote, so the possibility of generating coins today with a few cents of compute time may be a good bet with a payoff of something like 100 million to one. Even if, the odds of Bitcoin succeeding to this degree are slim. Are they really a hundred million to one against? It's something to think about. Hal immediately understood the asymmetric bet that Bitcoin was. And if this thing worked, where the ultimate end game was for, for a, a sound, secure, independent digital money, um, and even with all its flaws, even with all its drawbacks, he saw what the real innovation of it was. And while everybody else was like, oh, not instant transactions. Oh, it's, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't scale very well. Like he, he saw what the, the core of the value proposition was, that this was, um, even with it in not so certain terms, but that it was about an independent issuance schedule that you could simply know this was how many Bitcoin could exist. And like that is the innovation of Bitcoin. And like the number of things that we can build on top of this is veritably endless once we solve that problem. And I hope we get more privacy. That's kind of that next step that like to really like fully realize the cypherpunk dream is how do we really get privacy at all layers of the Bitcoin system? And um, I kind of, kind of in uh, relation to our pal is that like one of our pal's big problems, aside from the dependence on the central server, was that the tokens themselves weren't fungible. So it was very much like a postage sort of thing. Um, all you could you could use it basically to def as a defense mechanism, really more than anything. Um, and um, but the but the tokens, the proof of work, would be completely variant. I mean, just like you know, we go through the. GPA, FPGA, ASIC, or whatever, like a single proof of work for a block today is, is exponentially ridiculous in comparison to 
anything within the first two years of Bitcoin's existence. Like, I mean, like it, it's, it's absolutely incomparable, the degree of computing power that goes into a single hash. And you'd have the same thing with RPAL. And if you're actually attempting to value the proof of work independently, it's like, what's one worth if after seven years, um, the proof of work can be produced with one one billionth of a second, whereas when it was originally produced, it took like 10 seconds. You know, um, and, and we have the same kind of thing here is that what if you valued a block with 115 exahashes of computing power behind it with a block with, you know, one terahash of computing power behind it from five years ago or something? You essentially don't have fungibility in the RPAL tokens. Um, and that's another critical element of the money aspect is to separate the money from the from the hashing itself so that all you do, you simply create a defined system of tokens and whatever reason, speculative or not, or collectible or just novelty alone, whatever reason they obtain value, the fact that they're provably scarce and are in fact digital, have incredibly high settlement assurances and all of these other things that Bitcoin being a digital system can actually provide, um, obviously programmability to be um, on top of it. But it makes all tokens equal, right? Like the token is, is irrelevant to the, the security. The system as a whole is protected by its security rather than any individual token being defined by some subset of the security. So the, the, the unforgeable costliness and the settlement assurances and these things, the, that security mechanism and the time-telling mechanism of Bitcoin were moved to the entirety of the system rather than isolated to some specific token within the system. And in doing so, you created a fungible money. But therein lies another problem with privacy is you don't want to lose that fungibility. You don't want the potential to whitelist and blacklist or whatever certain coins and the, you know, that, that surveillance nightmare that could be um, that we all know could so easily be in our future if, if we don't solve the privacy problem. Um, but it's just so cool that Finney, like, like we definitely lost Finney way too soon. Um, and what a giant of cypherpunk history and the forever the optimist uh, he was um, to so faithfully be the first one running Bitcoin um, even after, you know, a decade and a half of wishing and seeing one after another fail, and he never gave up. And, and I love that he got to see, before we lost him, he got to see the one that may very well have, uh, have succeeded for the long haul. You know, he finally got to see it realized. If you haven't heard or read um, one of his last posts on the Bitcoin Talk forums, which is a uh, quote is actually grabbed from that, um, you know, after he had ALS and he was, you know, using a, his eye tracking software to write the comment on Bitcoin, uh, on the Bitcoin Talk forums. That is uh, Hal's Bitcoin and me post, which I have in audio. Um, and I posted it on Hal's day. So that's the one from August 28th. But if you haven't heard it, it's short but it's something that you definitely need to listen to. I will have the link in the show notes. And thank you to Aaron Von Wertham and Bitcoin Magazine for the Genesis Files series. Such a great one. 
and the optimist in me who is happy to take the long shot hopes that one day we will see Hal Finney again. I am Guy Swan. This is Bitcoin Audible. And until next time, take it easy, guys. This has been Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production on the Crypto Economy Network.